All right, let's pray. Lord, you're a mighty God. You're mighty and powerful. You have created the heavens and the earth by the word of your power. And since the beginning of time, you have directed all things according to your will and your purposes. And this morning, we come before you to worship you, to give you honor and glory and praise. And we come to look into your word. And indeed, we are aware that this is a tremendous privilege and honor. Uh, We know that your word has shaped history to an immense degree. We know that um, nations have risen um, and kingdoms have fallen because of the things that you have written here in your word. Um, And so as we come before you this morning, we come with a sense of expectation, uh, an expectation that you are at work, um, that you are alive and powerful, um, and that your word can work powerfully in our lives, um, in our communities. and in the world in general. So Lord, we look to you this morning. We pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance, that you would um, fill us with your spirit, that we might see the things that you have written here, and that we might know that they are true, uh, that we might see how they apply to our lives, and that we might walk in a way that brings honor and glory and praise to your name. Uh, This we pray in your holy name. Amen. Right, so this morning we are continuing our series called Dear Church, uh, where we are looking at the seven letters of Jesus Christ to his church in Revelation. Uh, Two weeks ago I gave the introduction, and last week Aaron spoke about the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, This morning's topic is the letter to the church of Smyrna. Uh, This is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, that's where we are reading from now. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Uh, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So this is our passage this morning. This is the, the words of Jesus Christ to the church in Smyrna. I mean, this morning I'd like to address this letter in three parts. I'm going to go through roughly three sections. Um, and I'm saying this for those of you who like to take notes. Um, and in each of these sections I'm going to address a question. And in the first section I'd like to ask this. Who is this letter from? Um, or more specifically, how does Jesus Christ identify himself? Um, And in verse 8, you can see his words. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now, these are very interesting words. Um, You don't often hear introductions like this, um, but they're very meaningful as well. Um, In the book of Revelation, we actually find numerous occasions where words similar to these are used to introduce... Jesus Christ and to introduce God. 
Uh, in chapter 1, verse 8, we hear this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then towards the end of the book, we hear, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now when it speaks about the Alpha and the Omega, these are the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha, and the last letter, Omega. So beginning and end, first and last. It's the same idea here. Uh, And finally in Revelation 22, uh, 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the reason I read these to you is it shows that this is a very important title, an important title for Jesus Christ. Um, The interesting thing, however, is that this is applied not only to Jesus Christ, but to God himself. I mean, that's the main point I want to make at the moment. This title properly applies to God. You know, last week Aaron spoke about the fact that there are people that deny what we call the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, The idea that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these verses are very important because they take a title that properly applies to God and God alone and they give that to Jesus Christ. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Now when John wrote these words, this would have been understood by all those who read this because this is a common title for God in the Old Testament as well. Um, In Isaiah 44, 6, we read this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So by applying this title to Jesus Christ, it's very clear that what he's communicating here is that Jesus Christ is worthy of all the adoration all the love, all the devotion due to God alone in this title. You know, it's very interesting uh, that those who deny these doctrines, the doctrines of the Trinity, often rely on a, a particular verse here or a particular verse there. But what they struggle to do is give an account for the whole counsel of God, to give an account for every verse of Scripture. I mean, of course, this is what a doctrine like the Trinity, which is really such an unsearchable mystery about God, what it tries to do. It tries to give an account for everything that the Scriptures say about God. You know, when Paul writes um, in Acts, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so it's very important that when we come towards God and we try to understand God, we don't take our, our doctrines, our understanding from a single verse here or a single verse there. What we need to do is we need to try to take account of what the whole Scripture says. What does the entire picture look like, rather than one little section over here or one section over there? The fact of the matter is, just about every heresy in church history has relied on the Bible to support its claims. It's taken a verse from this place or that place, pulled it out of context a little bit, 
or simply ignored other verses and said, this is what the Bible teaches. And I think it's very important for us, when we come to God, when we come to the Word of God, we need to be careful to try to understand what the whole counsel of Scripture teaches. And so that's the point I want to make here. In this passage, the Word of God applies a title that belongs to God alone, to Jesus Christ, showing that Jesus Christ is himself God and worthy of all the honor and glory and praise that is fitting uh, for God. Right, that's the first section in the first question. And I've asked, who is this letter from? How does he introduce himself? Um, and in the second place, I'd like to ask this. What does Jesus Christ commend the church in Smyrna for? Um, what does he know about them? Um, and this is in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So when we look at this verse, we can see that he says he knows three things. He knows their tribulation, their poverty, and the slander of their enemies. Now, tribulation is a rather old-fashioned word, isn't it? We don't really use that these days. Um, we use more modern words like suffering or oppression. And that's really what this word is getting at. It's getting at the idea of oppression and affliction and suffering. Um, in the Greek, it kind of has this overtone of a pressing down, a crushing or a, a pressure. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he knows that they're under a lot of pressure. And this pressure is causing them to suffer. It's bringing suffering into their lives. Now, of course, we also know that they're suffering because they're Christians. He's not saying, I know you're suffering because everyone in Smyrna is suffering. You know, it's a hard time right now. What he's saying is, I know that you are suffering because you belong to me, because you are obedient to what I have said. They are suffering because they believe in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the words in John 15, uh, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, Jesus said this to his disciples, but the same is true of this church here in Smyrna. This church here was faithful to Jesus Christ. They were seeking to obey Jesus Christ, to follow him. And as a result, the surrounding culture and the surrounding world hated them for that. And it hated them because it first hated Christ. And this was at the root of that suffering and persecution that was coming to them, this tribulation. It was because the world hated them because they followed Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that Jesus mentions is poverty. He says, I know your poverty. Uh, these Christians did not have much. They were poor. They did not have large houses filled with worldly riches. Um, if you looked at them, you would think that they were perhaps a cursed people, perhaps a people not worth much. 
they were poor. And I think this is a reminder to us that worldly riches are not a sign of God's favor. And we must be careful not to think otherwise. The fact of the matter is that these people were highly favored by God, despite the fact that they were poor. And in the final place, Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. This is very interesting because these Christians were outwardly attacked by those who called themselves the people of God. But notice what Jesus says about these people. He says, they say they are Jews, but are not. In fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I'd like to make two points about this. Um, And the first point is this. This should give us a great warning. The fact of the matter is that not everyone who claims to be among God's people is, in fact, among the people of God. Jesus calls these people a synagogue of Satan. Think about this. These people are Jewish people, people who were born and raised as Jews, knowing the word of God, knowing the covenants that God had made with his people Israel. These were people who had all the promises, and for all appearances, they were the people of God. And here Jesus says, these people are not Jews. In fact, they are servants of the devil. They are servants of Satan. When we look at the church today, we need to be aware that there are still wolves in sheep's clothing. And in many cases, some of the greatest slander, some of the greatest accusations against true Christians come from these people. Last week, Aaron spoke about false teachers, and he spoke about how we can recognize these people. I mean, again, this theme comes up. We need to be aware that in the church there are false teachers. And often these false teachers will accuse those who are real Christians, who will bring charges against them. And often these charges might even look good on the surface. They might say things like, you know, if you really loved other people, you'd be doing more of this or more of that. And you think on the surface, something like that could be a good thing. The point is we need to be very careful. We need to be careful when we bring a charge against God's people. Now, my second point is perhaps a little bit more theological. Um, and for the sake of transparency, I'd like to say, um, I'd like to preface this point by saying, like, I'm a little bit concerned to make this point. I um, mean, I'm concerned because I'm aware that this point kind of runs against what has historically been taught in dispensational churches. Um, that said, I suspect most of you will agree with me, and I don't think it's particularly controversial. Um, And I do believe that this is clearly what the Bible teaches, and so I feel constrained by that, Um, and so that's what I'm going to say this morning. Notice that Jesus said that these Jews are not Jews. Uh, This is a very interesting statement to make, because no doubt these people were in fact ethnical Jews. They were in fact people from Israel, people who had Jewish ancestry, children of Abraham, children of Isaac and Jacob. Now, when Jesus says they're not Jews, we might naturally ask him, what is a Jew? What does it mean to be a true Jew? In Romans 2, 28 and 29, it says this, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh, but someone is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit and not by the written code. This person's praise is from God and not from people. So we see that real Jews are those with circumcised hearts. In other words, the church is true Israel. The church is true Israel. And this is a key point. You see, there are not two peoples of God. There is not Israel on the one hand and the church over here, with God having different plans for Israel and different plans for the church. There is only one people of God. One people of God. And this is the church. Now, I want to be very clear here. I'm not trying to say that the church has replaced Israel as the people of God. And if you think that's what I'm trying to say, I want to be clear that that is not what I'm saying here. Rather, what I am saying is that all of God's promises and all of his purposes with Israel find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And to that extent, to the extent that they believe in that, to the extent that they find all their promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Israel is in fact the church. Because that is the key marker of what it means to be a Christian. Belief in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is at the center of it all. And to the extent that Israel accepts this, they are in fact Christians. And so we find that the two peoples of God, this Israel and the church, are in fact one people in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. I think Paul explains this very well in Romans when he uses the picture of an olive tree. He says this, But if some branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, olive tree do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are... Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You see, the picture here is of Israel being this olive tree. And this is a picture used in the Old Testament. Now, some of the branches were chopped off of this tree in order that branches from the Gentile nations might be grafted into the tree, that they might become part of this one tree, this one people of God. Those branches that were cut off incidentally, are not part of this tree. They're not part of God's people because they have rejected Jesus Christ. And Paul will later go and speak about how those branches may be grafted back in when they believe in Jesus Christ. There are not two trees, but one, and there is one people of God. Now, the reason I say that is because Jesus clearly talks about this in our passage. He says, these Jews are not Jews. They have rejected him. And this is important because when we fail to grasp this point, we can often see a bit of a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New. We can often think, you know, the New Testament is for us, the church, but the Old Testament is for the Jews, for Israel. And we can have this strong distinction in the middle of the Word of God, and we divide it, and we say, this bit here is far more important for us, and this bit here is of lesser importance. The fact of the matter is, there is great continuity in the Word of God, and all of the Word of God is for the people of God, for the church. Now, I hope I've been quite clear about that, and not misrepresented myself, but I think this is what the Bible teaches. So I'd like to recap up to this point. Jesus says he knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and he knows the slander of their enemies. 
But notice Jesus also gives a contrast in his assessment of them. He says they are rich. They are rich. Again, we see earthly riches are no sign of God's favor. They are no sign of the true wealth a person has. You see, a person is truly wealthy who believes in Jesus Christ, who stores up his treasures in heaven. Matthew six nineteen to 21 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These Christians were rich. Despite the fact that they had no earthly goods, despite the fact that they were poor, perhaps dressed in rags, they were rich because they had stored up their treasures in heaven. Now, of course, the greatest treasure, of course, is Christ himself. Jesus Christ is our greatest treasure. And the Bible talks about the fact that if God gives us Jesus Christ, who is the greatest treasure, how will he not with him give us all other good things? And we see when we have this, this treasure in Jesus Christ, we are rich. Now many of us today struggle with this. We seek after earthly riches. We seek to enlarge our kingdom here. We seek to build bigger and better houses. We seek to acquire more and more goods. Um, and my counsel would be, let's not do that. Let's rather lay up our treasures in heaven. Let's rather seek the kingdom of God. Let's rather seek to serve Christ. Let's rather seek to give all of ourselves, all that we have, to him, that we might be faithful and that we might glorify his name. That is the drive of this passage. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Now my third point is going to look at two more questions. You know, what does Jesus ask of these people and what does he promise them? This is the third point. And this is verses 10 to 11. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice that Jesus doesn't say he's going to immediately remove their suffering. You know, often our instinct as Christians is this is what we should expect. You know, if there is suffering, if we have a difficulty, we expect that that will immediately be taken out of our lives, that Jesus will do away with that and that we'll live happily ever after, so to speak. But that's not the case. And here we see that Jesus does not say he is going to remove their suffering. Instead, he says, you are about to suffer even more. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Now, I don't know whether this is a literal 10 days or whether it's a more figurative number as a, a, an amount of time, um, but the point is they are going to prison. Some of them are going to be thrown into prison. And more than that, some of them 
are going to die. Despite this, however, Jesus tells them two things. He says, do not fear, and he says, be faithful unto death. This is a rather bleak outlook, isn't it? Be faithful unto death. He's basically told them that some of you are going to die. Some of you will die for your witness to me. Throughout history, this has been the fate of many Christians. Many Christians have been persecuted in this way and have paid the ultimate price for serving Jesus Christ. There was a book published many years ago, um, I think it was during the 1600s, during Puritan times, called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm sure many of you have heard of that before. Uh, in this book, he basically records story after story after story of Christians who lived faithfully and died for their faith. Um, and perhaps I'll tell one story from that. I wasn't planning on it, so I'll have to tell it off the top of my head, but it might be worth doing that. One of the stories he tells happened during the Roman times, late in the Roman Empire, and he tells of a Roman legion that was, po that was posted in this freezing wasteland by a frozen lake. And one day, the commander of this legion decided to say, anyone who is a Christian, come out, and we're going to give you what's coming to you. And so a number of Christians came out. They stood up for what they believed in. They stood up for their faith. And the commander said, here's what's going to happen you're going to go out into the middle of this freezing lake and you're going to spend the night there. You're not going to have any clothes. You're not going to have anything with you. And until you tell me, until you come and say that you're willing to reject Jesus Christ, reject the fact that he is God and king, you are going to stay out there until you die, until you freeze to death. Now, I'm sure this band of Christians were disheartened at that, but nevertheless... They went out onto this lake without any clothes, and they spent the night there. Early in the morning, what the commander could hear was hymns being sung from the center of this lake as these Christians praised God in the freezing cold, in the biting cold. Slowly, some of these Christians started to succumb to the cold and started to die. And by the morning, many of them dead, but were dead, but there were just a few left, one or two, at this point, the commander was so impressed by their bravery that he said, if these men are willing to suffer so much as this for their God and for their king, then what they believe must be right. And he took his clothes off, ran out onto the lake, and joined them. And they all died. That's a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs. See, the fact of the matter is many Christians have suffered for what they believe. Now, of course, we do not face persecution quite as severe as this. We are not under threat of losing our lives today, but we face persecution in other ways. Uh, we face slander like these people. Uh, we face being ridiculed, ridiculed for our views, ridiculed for our beliefs. We are told that we follow an antiquated book written many years ago that has no relevance for, for the modern world. We are told that we're intolerant, that we're bigoted, that we're hateful towards other people because we don't agree with their choices. And in many ways, we face a lot of pressure for what we believe, what we believe about God and what we believe about Jesus Christ. And this is a form of persecution. 
But what Jesus Christ says and what he encouraged the church in Smyrna to do was not to fear and to be faithful unto death. And the same is true for us today. This is what our lives should be characterized by, a fearlessness. Despite the fact that we face difficulties and trials, we should be fearless in proclaiming what the truth actually is. And we should be faithful in obeying Jesus Christ. And we should not yield to the pressure that the world exerts on us. And if these Christians were faithful, Jesus promised to give them the crown of life. And I take this to mean life itself. If you read further, you'll see that he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's all of us. And he says this, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this is really the same thing. In both of these places, when he promises to give the crown of life and when he promises that they won't be hurt by the second death, what he is saying is that if you are faithful to me, you will have life, true life, life in the most meaningful sense, life that doesn't lead to death and destruction. He says the same thing in different ways. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, we can die in this earth. We can face many trials and tribulations, but those who are our, who are our enemies can't do anything to our eternal destination. They can't do anything to us in the long run. And ultimately... That is where we're headed. We're headed to a new heavens and a new earth where we will spend eternity with Christ. And nothing can prevent this from happening. And that is our hope. Although your body might be killed, you will have life. That is what Jesus is saying. Now the letter to Smyrna is also remarkable <clears throat> because Jesus does not say that he has anything against this church. In all the other letters, he will say, I have this against you. Just, you're doing all of this very well, but this one area you can improve in. In this case, he doesn't say that at all. He only says things that are positive. And I think that's a curious thing about persecution, a curious thing about trials and difficulties. It has a very refining effect. On the one hand, it prevents those who aren't really committed to being Christians from calling themselves Christians. If you're not truly committed to Jesus Christ, you're not going to say, I'm a Christian, when you can suffer as a result. And so it purifies the church in that way. But it also purifies those who are true Christians. When you go through this, when you go through suffering, you find that you come more and more to depend on Christ, more and more to trust in Jesus Christ, to hope in Him. You become more and more concerned about the things of God when the world lets you down. You don't care as much about the world. And so we see that persecution has a very refining effect. It burns away impurities. In James chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 4, it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And a few verses later in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And it uses the same, the same phrase there, the crown of life. When you are steadfast under trials, under difficulties, you will receive the crown of life. You will receive life itself from God. And ultimately, that is what we have in Jesus Christ. We have life. And Jesus Christ is our life. So at this point, I'd like to encourage you. Persevere. Remain steadfast in what you have believed about Jesus Christ. Remain faithful. Prioritize being obedient to Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, is that your, the driving motive in your life? Is the driving desire in your life to be obedient to Jesus Christ? Firstly, to know what he has asked, and then secondly, to seek after those things. What would you say? Is this your driving desire? Because that is what it means to be faithful, to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And so that's what I'd encourage you with this morning. Be faithful and you'll receive the crown of life. You see, these things are not not things that we do for no reward. They are not fruitless. They bear great fruit. Nothing in all the world can compare to what you will receive if you are faithful to Jesus Christ, if you pursue him. You will receive the crown of life. You will receive an internal heritage that cannot be taken away from you, that cannot be destroyed. So seek after that. Seek after Jesus Christ. At this point, we're going to go into a time of communion. And I'd like you to dwell upon that. Dwell upon Jesus Christ. He is given the ultimate price. At the start, it says, the words of him who died. And came to life. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price. He lived a life of perfect obedience, keeping the full commandments of God. And in doing that, he earned a righteousness. And by dying in the, on the cross in our place for our sins, he has made a way for us to come to God, a, a way for us to approach an almighty God, a God who cannot stand sin, because we are clothed in that righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask the ushers to come up. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your son, for the life that he lived and the death that he died. We know, as he said, that the world hated him. And we see this in the fact that he ultimately was crucified. We see this in the fact that he was persecuted and that he was slandered by those uh, who were his enemies. And we know that as Christians, we will face similar things. For if we truly follow Christ, we know that we will be treated in the same way that he was treated. So Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful. Grant that we may look to Jesus Christ and to his strength and not our own. Grant that we may trust in him, that we may hope in him, and that we might be faithful, faithful to what he has said. 
Lord, take away our fear, our fear of man and our fear of suffering. Grant that we should stand up in trials and persecutions and under pressure and declare boldly and faithfully that you alone are God and that you alone are the only way of salvation. And Lord, be this to us. Be our salvation. Be our life. And grant that we may have complete joy and complete fullness in you and in you alone. Uh, Take away from us any desire and passion for worldly things and give us a desire to know you and to love you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Amen.